Welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Episode 14 with Dom Moore. Dom's a good friend of mine. I've known him for a long time now. He um, started working on Kitesurf UK magazine, actually took over my old job when I left there. He's a really interesting character. He's got some funny um, outlooks on life, I guess is how you put it. And I was actually amazed that we only managed to fit two main stories into this podcast. He's got so many to tell, so I expect he'll feature on a few of these episodes. In this one, I decided to ask him about two things that have really changed his life in recent years. The first one was a trip to Hawaii where he hooked up with Archie Kalipa and did a lot of big water, big wave training with him, um, which led to him coming back to the UK, probably the most qualified waterman in Britain. And then more recently this year, uh, he found out, unfortunately, that he had skin cancer and he's been dealing with that and battling that and trying to work his way through it. So we go into quite a bit of in-depth stuff about how that came about and what's happening with his treatment and how he's managing to cope with that massive change in his life. So yeah, an episode about a couple of changes. I hope you enjoy listening to it. As ever, please give it a thumbs up. Give us a, uh, a like and a share on Facebook or social media. And if you fancy giving us a five-star rating on the App Store, then that's much appreciated too. Anyway, let's get into the latest episode. Today I'm sat with a very good friend of mine who I've known for a long time, a gentleman called Don Moore. He's definitely one of my more interesting friends, and uh, he's got quite a lot of very amusing opinions on life and the world, and he's a very interesting person. He's lived quite an interesting life, lives in Newquay. He's got a surf school down here at the Headland Hotel um, with a bunch of instructors and does surf lessons all summer, and then in the winter, uh, he does mostly self-education and surf trips, so he's a man that likes learning new things. At the moment, he's studying for a degree in sciences, is it, Dom? Yeah, natural sciences. Natural yeah. sciences degree through the Open University. So shout out to them if you fancy learning something new later on in life. Um, but he's got a few stories I wanted to touch on today. And the first thing I'm going to ask him about was what I saw maybe as a sort of a changing point in your life in the sense that you were, at the time, I think you were still doing Kite Surf magazine or maybe you'd finished it, but you were in the sort of kite industry a little bit and you went to Maui to stay with Cameron Dietrich uh, for a bit of a holiday and it all went a bit wrong but then it all went so very very right and you came out of that probably one of the most qualified watermen in the UK so what the hell happened there Dom? Yeah well it was um, it was exactly that it was a bit of a a transition period for me back here and I sort of I think I was coming to the end of working at Kite Surf Magazine. I realised that I wasn't going to do it for forever, and uh, I needed to do get a career, do something proper. And I thought, well, I've been involved in the kite sports, surf sports industry for this amount of time now. I might as well double down and really stick at it. Yeah. So what can I do about that? Well, you can't just go and get more qualifications because they don't really exist. But you need to learn. So I thought, well, the best place on the planet's got to be go to Hawaii for the winter. So I booked a six-week trip out there, um, and Cam's like, "Yeah, come out, stay, stay here." And got there, it wasn't quite as much room there as we thought there was going to be. Well, it was it was good. There was room. There was space for me. It was on the lanai, yeah, sleeping on there, which was fine. Um, but I decided to get my own place, and you know, found a, found a place out there. 
And I was going around interviewing people for the magazines. Uh, I think for Stuff International magazine, it just started then. Okay. Yeah, that just started then. So I was in contact with the guys at C4 Waterman, and then they said, oh, you need to speak to Archie Cleaver. He's the man, and his name kept cropping up again and again and again. And so I uh, drove over to the west side of, of uh, Maui and uh, did this interview with Archie Cleaver and went, for, went on for about an hour, sat down having a good old chat. And then uh, he says, what are you doing now? And I thought that was going to be it. I said, well, nothing. He goes, well, I'm going training. Let's go training. I said, what are we training nice. for? He said, we're training <laughs> for big waves. I said, that's fortunate because we're in Hawaii. I said, yep. but it's surf's flat. And uh, he says, you don't train for big waves in big waves. Um, so what are we going to do? And so we just, I think we just went off, uh, grabbed a couple of sups, a couple of masks, hit the water, swimming around, snorkeling with turtles, had a bit of a sup race, that, you know, the rest of it. And he says, what are you doing for the rest of the week? I said, nothing. He said, well, I'm on a mission now. You know, I'm 45. He said, I'm on a mission to get ultra fit again and just do loads of stuff. Yeah. And he has been on a tear ever since. He's been on TED Talks and all sorts of things and <laughs> done all sorts of surreal challenges. Um, so for the next 10 days, we trained together every single day. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, we did the classic rock running. Yeah. He showed me all about the breath hold techniques and the master switch, um, which is, uh, you know, the blood shift from your arms and legs into your core. Yeah. Happens at a certain point and suddenly your breath hold just explodes and goes, goes absolutely crazy. Uh, so we did the rock running, we did the underwater stuff. Um, he explained all about the spirits of the turtles and how you can't touch them. And then a uh, load of outrigger canoe stuff. That was a big thing. Okay. So the outrigger canoe stuff, um, there's me and him and this four-man outrigger canoe, bloody heavy thing to carry, um, but we could manage it between ourselves. And we were surfing these little one-foot waves over a reef. And he said, this is some of the best training you'll ever have for, for surfing decent waves. Um, he said, we have to be so precise and so focused with this outrigger canoe, because if we get it wrong, it's going to flip over. We have yep. to take off exactly on the bowl. So it's really training you to look for the bowl <laughs> and the takeoff point. So take off on the peak, not down the line where you think it's a bit easier take off on the peak look for the bowl and uh, and draw really very deliberate proper proper turns arching turns arching turns so we started off in about one foot surf of that and we ended up taking it out in like double overhead surf <laughs> <laughs> this place so you, you know you're getting really sort of surf confident really and of course the, it does flip out from time to time the anchor sinks to the bottom all the bags fall out of it because it's got ballast you have to swim down Pick all those back up at the roof. You're in the you know, off the reef. You're in the impact zone. All the rest of it. Bit of a yard sale. Complete yard sale. Yeah, complete yard sale. Um, yeah, real carnage everywhere. So we, we were doing a lot of that, and then um, he he said, "Oh, what surfboard have you got?" I said, "Well, I bought a step up board uh, for this place." And he said, "How big is it?" I said, six, six. He said, "That's tiny." He says, "Not a step up board in Hawaii." Um, he said, "How's it been going for you?" I said, "Well, not very well actually." And I've been trying to catch waves out at um, Keeper. Yep. Yeah, and not doing very well. Um, it's because there's such a lot of bloody paddling to do out there. So he said, well, take this. And under the house, he had this sort of gun, this 8.6 gun. He says, if you wax it up and clean it up, you can use it as long as you give it back to me in good condition. I did. And so I took it and uh, went down to Ho Keeper and it was, you know, it was pumping and uh, felt, felt really good and self-confident. Self Jumped in the rip, paddled out, and I was paddling out behind, behind Pete Cabrina. Oh, wow. And I thought, this is an absolute... Watershed moment for me because I completely idolised Pete Cabrera. Yeah, massive waterman. Massive waterman, especially in those days. He was in that film in God's Hands, and he was part of the Strap Crew. Yeah, um, he was in Surfer Mag, and he had the record at the time for surfing. the biggest wave. Yeah, Jaws. And I was like, well, this is this is it. Yeah, I'm on a gun here, and I'm paddling out. Pete Cabrera is there, and we're off to surf 
bloody hoe keeper. And um, yeah, I had a couple of absolute bangers out there. And I was like, I think I can kind of do this. And uh, so, yeah, you know, a few more sessions out there. That was great. And then Ireland hopped over to Oahu. Things, the sort of training time were coming to a, and then with Archie, he was obviously carrying on, but I had to go to Oahu. I'd booked some time over there. Yeah. And I stayed at this place on Sunset Beach and they had um, a load more guns. The guy actually makes guns. He had a 9.6 for me there and just uh, Sunset every day. Um, did that for the rest of the time and then that's a pretty heavy wave to be surfing yeah yeah it is, it is and you learn a lot so keeper and sunset are kind of similar in a way um there's this big big bloody rumbling thing that gets sort of more powerful as it bends in and you're watching out for wide sets and you need to have a good mental map of it so this yeah. this is what i really started learning so um archie explained to me about you know the physical process of of getting strong and fit to survive wipeouts and to to surf ways and the technique element as well and then there was a obviously a huge knowledge component to it which i started to pick up and realize that this is actually like playing a game of chess yeah or you need a it's plan not just about the surfing there's a whole load of stuff around yeah it. you're not just that's it you're not just going out and reacting you, you know and they're explaining look this rip does this it does this you have to got to come in this way if you miss it you just go around again that's actually the quickest way rather than struggling um so all these techniques and all these knowledge things you learn and then you get it all figured out and they were, you know, and then you just execute your plan basically. So rather than going out there and reactively surfing, oh, this has happened, that's popped up, and oh, that wave just stood up in front of me, I'll get that one. You know what's gonna, what you're looking for, what might happen. So like a game of chess, you're playing. Yeah. So you're planning it. A few moves ahead, and uh, their philosophy was very similar. Obviously, it's this Hawaiian way of doing things, and they were saying, look, go out sunset. Don't expect to get a wave every time. You just might not. You might be too scared. Yeah, you know, it might be too busy. You know, there's a ton of things that could happen. It might not come through in the time you've got. Um, but every time you go out, you learn something. And I thought that's brilliant. Um, so that was a complete, that that was a, a real change for me. That was like the most powerful learning experience I'd had at that point. Cause what I, was it like paddling out of sunset? Because you're a very pink-headed, <laughs> yeah. bald, massive yeah. Aryan male. Yeah. So what on earth do they make of you when you're coming out? As pale as, I, as it gets, basically, yeah. They liked it. They really liked really? it. Yeah, so they would paddle paddle past or whatever, and the Hawaiians always say hello. They say hello to everybody, and they expect you to say hello, yeah, back. hello back. Yeah, don't sit there and just be ignorant in your own yeah. world. So if you do that, you're kind of halfway there. Um, as soon as they hear your accent... They're like, where are you from? You say England. And they're like, it's freezing over there. Oh, wow. (laughs) But there's quite, you know, obviously there's the Union Jackets on the Hawaiian flag. Right. Um, You know, so they're they're aware of what it's like. They know know that Ireland is a new frontier or was in those days a new frontier. big big wave surfing. Yeah, these images have started to come over. So they were really quite interested. And once you're having a conversation, a lot of barriers get broken down then and it makes the whole experience a lot more comfortable when you're sitting out there and you can ask, for information you can say well, yeah. where you know the wind's changing tomorrow where's a good spot that i should check out not like where where is your secret spot so where would you recommend i go yeah and, and they'll tell you that's pretty good yeah and they'll tell you to go somewhere and just tread lightly one guy on your own it's all right um but yeah it was definitely a st- step up i had surfed quite a few different waves around the world by that point yeah so i was sort of you're relatively pre- comfortable yeah you're a pretty decent surfer i remember you did something a while back i can't remember if that was before or after and you basically uh, you put a post on social media or on your blog and you said that you were going to surf every day for two weeks. Because when you go on a two-week surfing holiday, it doesn't matter what the conditions are, you go surfing every day and you yeah. make the most of it. Whereas when you live and it's your local spot, you're always being really picky and choosy. 
what was kind of the idea behind that? Was that to sort of improve your level of surfing or just because you were like, I'm just not, not making the most of living in Newquay and I need to change it up? A few things, really. Um, it was actually straight after the Hawaii trip. Was it? Yep. I was, it was so strange. I was out there having you know, a great time surfing all these waves. And then one day I was looking on Facebook and I could see someone had posted up a photo of a walk they'd done from Watergate to Newquay and it was frosty. And it, it just looked absolutely stunning. And I suddenly really wanted to be somewhere cold i.e. back in England and it, yep. was, it was February and then people were putting up cold you know photos of surfing in cold water and stuff and I thought I just really really need to do that and uh, so I actually cut the trip short by a week I was supposed to go to Kauai and I didn't I was so strangely desperate to, to come back and I came back and then I did think well why don't I just treat this like I'm in Hawaii where I was doing something every day and it was Archie Kalipri sort of showed me about that like there's always something you can do and it can always be really fun just be open-minded yeah. about it and I, was, I thought well I'm going to do that so I had a sup board I had my surfboards I had my kite surfing kit I was like I'm sure I can do something every single day of the, for the week I have a really banging session so I did it for a week and I was like that's great and I was driving all around Cornwall doing all these things and then I sort of do it for another week and then I just did it for three months Wow. So that was the thing to go in every single day for three months. And it just turned wow. out the surf was pumping for ages. <laughs> so I documented it all with a GoPro at the time and made little blogs about it and made everyone like a, every, every session was like a little adventure. Even just walking down to Town Beach, which is yeah. five minute walk. I'd take photos of the kebab shop and the streets and put a little thing together. It was just a really nice process. So you had the surfing element to it, but then there was this creative process just purely for myself. I had the camera and I was taking some photos. Um, but that was really to, yeah, push myself in over the hump if I could. Yeah. Because I started quite late, so I had to have to find other ways to improve. Yeah. You know, I didn't start till I was late teens. Um, so you've, you've got to do the best with what you've got by that point. So for me, that really means, you know, working on the fitness element of it or maintaining that really. I've never had to really do too much of that. Um, but the knowledge is a big thing, um, which is probably why surfing places like Sunset, um, a bit more appealing to me rather than somewhere like pipe, which is ultra technical and, uh, yeah, you know, in a different way. And I just don't fit into that certain types of waves. Very well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause you're so huge. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's some big dudes that do it, but I just uh, not very good riding barrels really. Yeah. Don't fancy that. I remember when you did that cause it inspired me at the time and, uh, I can't remember how long I did it for. I think it was a month maybe, or maybe it was a couple of months and obviously coming from the East coast where there is no surf, mm. I couldn't do the surfing bit, but I would go kite surfing, I would go mountain biking, I would go on my skateboard, and just doing one thing every day that's fun and that is exercise, it was a real eye-opener, you know, and it was just like, oh, I'm living the dream here, this is great, rather than just sitting in and doing the usual winter of getting a bit fat and drinking too much beer. Becoming more selective, that's yeah. it, becoming too selective, and you do your chip away and you chip away, and then the next thing you know, you're only going out in a certain set of conditions, and you yep. may as well give it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it just changed my opinion forever. And I think once you've done something like that, you've seen how it can be. You never really stay away from it. So although I'm not going in every single day now, well, I do in the summer because we're teaching. Yeah. I'm in an awful lot. And you just get used to making it convenient. Like you have your stuff ready. So you can go, oh, yeah, I'm going. And yeah. there's no faff. There's not trying to find this fin or that stuff. It's all there. It's ready to go. And away you go. Yeah. Get yourself out there. Yeah. And then obviously you came back from uh, that trip to Hawaii and you'd learned a lot about big waves and the ocean and mm. all that kind of knowledge base, I guess. And then you started surfing the cribber after that or was that before? I, I started remember. surfing the cribber after that. Yeah. Yeah. Not long after because I'd 
had a board for it for ages. But just never had never, the balls to go and do it? Pretty much, yeah. I'd sort of been out there a couple of efforts and not really caught it and never gone out there when it's too big. And the thing is, you have to go out when it is properly big, otherwise you can't catch the wave. Yeah. Um, it has to be breaking. So I never really had the... I wanted to do it. I always thought it looked like a really attractive-looking wave when you see a photo of it. And it is when it breaks. It looks a really beautiful-looking wave. Um, but no, I never had any success. And so... After that, I was like, well, I've surfed Sunset. I must be able to surf the Cribber. Yeah. And, and we did. We started surfing it. I started surfing it with Smiler. And what was the first session like? <laughs> <laughs> it was quite remarkable. Um, we were surfing at Fistral on our shortboards, and uh, it was pretty good, and the tide was low enough, and we just saw a set break out there, and it was blue and sunny, and it wasn't very late in the year, and we just looked at each other and said, well, should we just paddle over there and just sit there and, you know, see, what's see what happens, see what happens. And we did, and a lump came through, and we both paddled for it. It wasn't a proper cribber lump, but it was a wave. And we did think we'd be sucked down a black hole or something. <laughs> we really thought there was something that was going to happen. Um, we got we paddled, caught it, stood up, glided in. I had my GoPro on the front of the board, of course, in those days. It was never far away. And um, we were really ecstatic and delighted. And it wasn't until I looked back at the footage later, I realised that we were holding hands. <laughs> we, were, we were so we were looking around, like, oh my god, we're looking at our arms. Like, we're still what alive. should we do with our arms? Yeah, we're yeah. still alive. And then we just the hands were reaching, and then we started holding hands and surfed in uh, on this wave at the cribber. And we, we we were just so surprised that it had worked, and that we hadn't died. And that you you sort of think the water's going to be different. All these things would be different. Like it's still still regular water but it does feel different when you're out there it's a strange place because it's off the end of a headland and you have this 270 degree view of everything whereas normally when you're on a beach it's 180 degree max because yeah. you've got land in front of you whereas the land falls away on both sides fistral so on one side looks pretty you're out, out there yeah you're out to sea so um strangely smiler immediately found the lineup spot he goes oh yeah you've got to line up with this it's it's right here and uh, I never, I just thought, how do you know that? And found out later that he just saw it and figured that must be it. But that's the lineup spot I've used every, ever since. And if you actually look on a C chart, he got it exactly right. Really? Yeah. But the lineup spots that he, cho- he chose, uh, there's a cottage, uh, the last cottage on the left. And behind that, you can see the war memorial in the distance. And when they're lined up. In a transit. Yeah, in a transit line, you're bang on the takeoff spot and if you look on a sea chart you can see it because all those elements are there and you can see the shallowest part of the reef is right there so Perfect. yeah just sit there um and yeah, you surf the, it whenever it's good now yeah if if <laughs> if i'm around yeah. yeah if i'm around it went actually the weekend just gone um but i was surfing north fishing instead which i think was actually better that day the tide needs to be quite low for cribber to really be good um otherwise well the the reef is like a chevron and you want it breaking further back on that reef. So it's got this chance to stand up and then peel off. If it's too deep, it breaks further in on the reef and the whole thing will just fold. And yeah. you get the shoulder at the side and it's not really, the shoulder's not really much fun. Yeah. There's nothing happening there. So you want to be in the You want it low spot. tide and you get that proper pitching over. Yeah. It's an elephant experience. Yeah. It's really good. Have you ever had any nasty wipeouts there? No. <laughs> I'm really Come up careful. smelling the roses. Yeah, I'm really careful. I've had to swim under a couple. Um, there's been a couple of scary moments where you know you're trapped inside, but you just if you know which way the tide's pulling, it's either dropping or coming in. It's going to be, and it switches like that. It doesn't really go slack. It's always moving. As long as you know where you are on the tide, you can paddle the quick way out there. So dropping tide will pull you to the left as you're looking out to sea. Pushing tide will 
probably to the right as you're looking out to sea. Okay. So if you're stuck in the middle and you know where you are on the tide, you can just take the quick take way. Take the quick route. Yeah. If you take the wrong way, then you'll be paddling against the current, which could be quite strong. And you just obviously you've got more chance of getting hit. Yeah. Which so, is yeah. nasty. That's and I imagine if you do get hit on the head by one of those, it's oh, pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, uh, I've seen someone get towed into one there. We were out there. I was out there with Rob Small. Um, someone got towed into one and he backdoored the wave. The lip landed on his back and shattered his ankle. No way. The weight of water. Yeah, it broke his... Yeah, that was him done. Luckily, there's a ski to take him out there. I see another guy got towed in once, uh, took the wrong wave, got washed up on the rocks with punctured lungs. No way. Yeah. There's that always heavy. It's a really, really thick lump of water when it comes in. It's just not a very long wave. Um, people think it's a crumbly wave. Well, it is at certain times, but the, when it's properly the going... Peak- it, when yeah. it's far and is heavy. It's, it, oh yeah, it's really heavy. Well, was um, did Smiler have a big wipe out there once? He's had a few. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he was out. He start. He went back out there again on a shortboard for some reason. I think he didn't like surfing a gun out there, and uh, he went out on his shortboard. Yeah, he just got absolutely thrown. <laughs> <laughs> Came up like an old dog, <laughs> paddling paddling back around. But he's tough. He's tough and he's got really, really big lungs on him. He's seen his, his chest is just, um, you know, it's just a barrel, isn't it? Yeah. And he's got no extra weight on his legs because they're very thin. You used to do quite a lot <laughs> of um, big wave missions with him with kites as well, didn't we, you? Yeah, we did a lot of stuff. Yeah, we had a really good time. Yeah, we did. We were, we just suddenly started, decided, we decided there must be waves all around Cornwall. Yeah. Where there are. And uh, we were just on a mission to do it. And we hadn't kite surfed Port Levin by that point. Um, if the swell was, Big, we would never be kite surfing at Watergate on a big southerly. You just didn't do it. You went to Marazine. Yeah. Um, that really started for us because Damer Bay around that time, for some reason, the sand was all different there. And Damer Bay used to get really big. Uh, but it was quite a, it was a relatively safe place to to kite. We went out there on a particularly big swell one day and uh, decided to go over to uh, Poles F, the next beach along. Yeah. Nearly got caught out by a huge, huge set. Um, but we managed to just sort of scrape scrape past it and came back in and everything. And uh, a couple of people saw us and said, oh, you're mad for doing that. And we were like, yeah, but we, we really enjoyed being out there. We were, this is a really good feeling. And we sort of decided, yeah, we're going to do more of that. Because it can happen and you go, actually, I don't want to do that again. Yeah. But we were kite surfing, learning loads, really enjoying it. And it was a really positive thing. So we're like, well, we're kind of doing okay at this. And then... Um, we started to build up surfing, you know, Porf Levin. That was really exciting. How was the first session out there? I lost my board straight away. <laughs> straight. <laughs> I used to get all sorts of shockers out there. Because um, the launch is sketchy as hell, yeah, isn't it? The launch is bad. We always did all right with the launch, but we used to get into such pickles, uh, such pickles, actually kite surfing on the reef there. Um, but yeah, it sort of built up to that one slowly. He was a little bit ahead of me out there. In fact, he was way ahead of me out there. It took me a while to sort of really find my feet out there. And I always used to feel more comfortable, to be honest, surfing the cribber than I did kite surfing at Port Levin. Really? Yeah. Um, then I don't know what changed. I don't know what changed, but something did. I think you just keep doing it and you get comfortable get with it. it. You get some good waves. And I was like, oh yeah, I really, I really enjoy that now. But that was really good. And then um, we went out of Watergate because the kites got better around that time as well. Yeah. That was the big thing. You could never kite at Watergate in a southerly because the kites just were too Command gusty. It. Yeah, and also if you're on twin tips and things, you can't go through the lulls. But with the surfboard and the well, it was bow kites really. Um, you could do it, and so it was. Gosh, it was a long time ago. Now it's 2009. We went there as a four and a half meter swell, 16 second period, 
That's um, huge. Yeah, it was huge. And uh, Southerly Winds, like 30 knot Southerly Winds, and we're like, well, why we, not? We should do really now, shouldn't we? And we did. We went out there and rode it, and they were the biggest waves I've seen at Watergate ever. That, that was really good. Did you get some good pictures of that? We did. Excellent. Yeah, we did get some pictures. Yeah, we just looked like dots. It just looked really... Just like ridiculous. Un- yeah, it just it almost looked unimpressive because it just... Oh, oh, it's just it was so dot. big. The yeah. scale was too yeah, much. Yeah, it just it didn't really compute. Yeah. Um, so, that, yeah, that was a real, a real good... We've never seen it that big since. I remember doing a big day with you and Smiler there once. Uh, a little while ago now. Yeah, probably quite a day. long time ago. And, yeah, it was terrifying. Hmm. You know, properly terrifying, massive lumps of water moving around. Yeah, you and that's and there's it. no and it's a beach break, so there's no rip to get out of. You have to get over the white water, and you have to pick your moment, yeah. and then you have to go. Oh, yeah, I think I'll make it over that one, and yeah. my hope that you do. And it's definitely not really a crash zone, is it? You don't want to drop your kite in that you, lot. No, if you that's it. If you, our system was, if you drop your kite, you eject your kite. Yep, straight away. Um, straight away, because you may be tangled up. You know, a line could be tangled up, or you get like a really bad whiplash effect when that wave hits that canopy. Yeah, the kite will always just get washed in. And we used to wear impact vests. Do you remember we had yep. those? That really helped confidence a lot. Um, and then the system was: you've crashed your kite, ditch it. You've got your board. You've definitely got a leash. Yeah. Swivel, swivel your harness around so the the spreader bars at the back. Line your board and just come in like that. And just get going. Yeah. Take three on the head and you'll you'll get in. Um, but that was a real motivator for you know breath hold training and things like that. Cause yeah, that was really... the next thing I was going to ask you about because you started around that sort of time doing courses for people where people could come yeah. and learn a bit of ocean safety, mm. which I think was probably the first time that had been done in the UK in terms of certainly for kite surfers. Um, how did that all sort of come about? What was the what was the thinking behind doing that? Well, a friend of ours um, had a really bad experience. He's a really good kite surfer and a really great guy. And um, he just got really unlucky. He got he crashed his kite in a rip. Didn't really understand. It was quite a nasty rip current. Um, I think it was up at Dama Bay. No, it was Harlan. It was Harlan Beach. Um, and he, he just couldn't get out of the rip. Didn't really understand the mechanics of it that well. Was a bit panicked. And, and he got rescued by the lifeboat. Uh, it was really bad. He was hypothermic when they pulled him in and in a real bad, bad way. Nasty. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's really unfortunate. But there are people now... You know, there were people then going kite surfing in waves who might not be from a wave background. You know, yep. they've got the kite skills. You know, the technique is there. Everything's there. There's some knowledge missing. Yeah. Simple as that. If they have this knowledge, then they can kite a lot more safely and they can kite in bigger waves and take more risks and have better experiences because they know what they can do before, during and after if, if something's going to go wrong to keep themselves safe. So that was really inspired by my Hawaiian experiences as well. And then doing all that kite surfing with Smiler in those days, I was thinking, yeah, I'm kind of all right at this now. And I put a post up on the Kiteboarder Forum, which is quite busy in those days, just said, I'm going to teach everything I know about kite surfing on a two-day course. Yeah. Whole half a page of A4, all that information. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, it's not going to cost you anything, just come down. And I just wanted to see if anyone was interested, see if I enjoyed doing it, see if they thought it was interesting at all and uh luke denny came down from brighton kite surf kings with andrina okay uh, andrina kelly and uh, some other crew and they were such an awesome bunch and they were really up for it and they just were so stoked to kite and get out in the waves and smash it and so we we went through pretty much everything i knew about watercraft 
and how to survive wipeouts, how to prepare for them, how to train for them on land, get your head in the right space. Um, and that was it. And so that, that would, they liked it. And uh, I thought, well, oh, I'm going to do this now as a job almost. Yeah. So I started running more and more of them. And that, that became my, my thing. It's a pretty cool thing to be doing. Yeah, I really loved doing it. It was amazing. And sometimes I used to pack too much in. And I could t- there were people who just have like glazed eyes at the end and like they're like it's, <laughs> too much it's fried and I'd just be throwing loads and loads and like too much stuff in, but I wanted it to, I wanted it to be a course, and this is still how I like to do my my lessons and how we do things down at the surf school. You should be able to come along and not even leave the changing rooms and you'll still have a complete knowledge bomb. Yeah, you'll learn a load of stuff. So I always say to people when they're training for that sort of thing. Don't worry about the conditions. We're almost better off if the conditions are bad. Because we'll just be learning more. We'll be more. learning more stuff. You won't be hiding behind your kite surfing or surfing, you know, just doing that instead of stretching yourself. So, you know, come and see us when the conditions are bad and you're not going to go surfing or kite surfing. Get all your knowledge and then execute when yeah, the conditions are good. Then take that with you yeah, don't wherever miss- you go. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Were you quite into the apnea training thing at that time as well? I was interested in it. Yeah, I was interested in seeing how long I could hold my breath for. Um, I thought it was a pretty cool thing to do. Um, so I did go and see a guy, and he got up to we did four minutes, 40 seconds or something like that. That's pretty uh, impressive. It was pretty good. It was, yeah, it was pretty good, and I thought, that's enough. Yeah. You know, that, that'll do. I mean, obviously, when you're moving around, it's going to go down a lot more, but the main thing, it was a psychological booster. Yeah. So like, okay, know I know there's that. reserves here. Um, so I was like, that's, that's fine. But that was a pretty interesting process. Um, funny enough, now that I'm doing a lot of, well, free diving and spearfishing, yeah. um, a lot more spearfishing than free diving really, but do a bit of that. I'm less concerned with breath hold training, even though I'm holding my breath out of a lot more. Um, yeah, not, not so interested in it, probably because I'm not interested in pushing myself to un- the limits. Yeah, that's it. It's made me become really aware um, that unless you've got a proper buddy system and the other people around you are trained, you, you don't, don't risk it. Yeah, don't hold your breath till you're starting getting contractions and convulsions, which is what you do in free diving. You try and ride past them. Yeah, um, yeah. What I used to find interesting as well was all the ways you could, you know, train uh, for dynamic apnea, which is moving around while you're holding your breath. Um, some really good psychological boosters. Once you've done them a few times, they kind of stay with you. It doesn't really seem to be a perishable. Uh, skill if yep. you like um, we used to do those on the courses I still do those with certain clients at the surf school if it looks like their surfing is going in that direction um, a really good one is to stand at the top of a sand dune walk down it with your breath hold holding your breath get to the bottom turn around and run back up uh, all with your breath hold so what that psychologically prepares you for is being you know the descent of a, yeah, of a wipeout and the panic to come back up um, that's quite interesting. So yeah. that's like taking it a whole step further than just an apnea walk or something like that. Yeah, yeah. The apnea walks are great because you can do them on the way back from the shops. Or the pub know. or wherever. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Lamppost to lamppost. Um, but yeah, they're really good psychological boosters. Um, anything that you can do, I think, in training, uh, the more specific it is to the experience you're going to have in the sea is a really good thing to do. So um, you'll know that when you're under pressure in the water, you don't suddenly rise to the occasion. You sink to the level yeah. of your training. And what you've thought about, you just have to go into the default modes because there's so much adrenaline going around. You're not making decisions anymore. You're just reacting in very gross sort of motor skills ways. Yeah. So, yeah, any I call it stress inoculation. Well, that's not what I didn't create that term, but it is called stress inoculation. 
you look at a scenario, you think, how can we prepare for this? Um, well, we can't just throw ourselves in big ways all the time. I mean, that would kind of work, yeah. but also might set you back if it went wrong. Or could you get scare injured. you a bit or you you hurt bit, yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Could drown. You, you certainly, <laughs> which is the number one thing, really, is to like, what is the number one fear of doing any of these things? It's drowning. So yeah, work backwards from there. So if you think you're going to get too panicked, it's a horrible feeling being underwater, not being able to get up, being thrown around when you, when you feel like you're running out of oxygen. You're, you're not running out of oxygen. You're just having a CO2 buildup. Yeah. That's the first trigger that makes you want to breathe. It's unlikely you'll be hypoxic down there. So if you can find ways that will help calm your mind, I've been here before, I know what this experience is like, then, then it's going to make it a much more pleasant experience. I always liken it to people say that it's, you're, going to, you're going to play live music in the pub on Friday night. You wouldn't do it without practicing. You know, yeah. you're going to do all your scales. You're going to learn the songs really well. You're going to rehearse it. You're going to do it in front of the mirror, do it in front of your mates and wife, whatever. So when the time comes, you're actually well, well you're ready for it. it. Yeah, same as public speaking. Anything you've got to you've got to prepare. Otherwise, if you don't, you can tell the people that didn't prepare. Yeah, very quickly. You, you can't exactly. So it's either that. I think you either have a shocker or you just don't do it at all, or you prepare for it and you see that people that do it and have done it well have prepared at some level. Do you ever get scared when you go out in conditions like that? Um, or do you feel like you've prepared enough that you don't get scared? Or do you get scared all the same regardless get, yeah, of the preparation? I do, I think, yeah. I think the most... I'm quite careful. I'm a very cautious, cautious surfer and kite surfer. I won't take silly risks and I won't do things I don't think are, are dangerous. Sometimes I do get scared. Um, the last time was actually during, I think, Storm Cullum, Callum, and the ocean just turned really, really ugly. I paddled out and it was a certain size. And by the time I got out there, it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was breaking way off the island behind Crown Talk. And I was at South Bristol, which is just an alarming thing to see. <laughs> uh, when it's doing that, yeah, it's horrible. And that was just getting more and more. And sometimes you get the sense that you're being caught out by the ocean. Yeah. So like an indiv- individual waves or set of waves or the big beat down from a wipeout isn't itself too bad. It's the water draining back out, rips appearing where there weren't rips before, currents taking you one way, then another you really have no idea of what is going on. You're like, I'm at the mercy of this here. And you're a bit of far away from shore, which is what someone who might not have much experience feels like when they just get trapped in a very simple rip. Yeah. Um, but the, the whole beach can ri- literally turn into a rip and there's huge waves coming through and you think, if I snap my leash here, I'm, I'm properly screwed. Done, yeah. Yeah. You know, things like building, you know, building swell, dropping light, all the usual stupid things you shouldn't be doing, pushing tide. Bad yeah, risk management. Bad, <laughs> yeah, totally, exactly, bad risk management. That was, so those, those situations are never very pleasant, and then I just find a way to come in quite safely. Um, but the, one of the times I thought was, actually, this is bloody stupid, what am I doing, was uh, in the Orkney Islands. Okay. And I went up there. You did that on your own, didn't you? Yeah, I went up there with the dog, with Red. Just with the dog. <laughs> yeah. She's not going to be any use whatsoever. No, she, no, absolutely, no. She was just running around the beach, like... Having the know, best time. Having a great time. And there was the only person that was there, you know, I was there, was a photographer, a really good photographer. But I don't think there's a mobile phone signal there. There's not even, a, I don't know if there's a lifeboat there. He certainly isn't going to come out and get you. Get me. No. And of course, you're on an island, so you're soon off the end of the island. It goes the wrong. And there's this bay called Scale Bay. And that's where the settlement of uh, Scarabray, the oldest settlement they found in Europe, is, okay. is there. Um, 5,000 years old, little hobbit houses, incredible place. And this massive, uh, it was again like four and a half meters well, 16 second period seems to be the magic sort of <laughs> magic danger numbers. number. <laughs> yeah. And uh, got some photos of just on the inside reforms, which were, you know, way overhead. But I kited out 
and um, out of the bay just to sort of because there's bigger waves breaking out there and they were the biggest waves I've ever seen and they were like huge huge sheets of metal uh, <laughs> just this is what they look like huge bent, bent bits of metal and I thought I could you know maybe I could go and ride one and and he'll get the photo and oh I'll be a hero yeah. there won't I and I thought yeah what if the kite falls out of the sky you yeah. know or something goes wrong so I sort of skirted in at the the foothills of one of these things and then you know it, it reformed when it got into the bay but that was that was the tight that's probably one of the most exposed to risk I think I've been it, I guess it's like all these things you do you do sports you train for it you know you can cope with it but then it, unless you're pushing your risks every now and then you don't know your limits you know, that's because you, you just stay in your safe zone yeah you do exactly um so yeah I, I think probably since since I got the school which was five years ago so that changed my direction a little bit because I think a lot of these you know some of the reason why I was doing these things was a bit of a profile building exercise as well like I needed to have a way to have a profile so I could get certain gigs like the job with Volvo um, to keep the presence up for the clinics I was running because it's, it's literally like spinning a plate you know how it is yeah. as soon as you stop spinning the plate you drop off the radar someone else pops up um, so yeah I was you know working with Ocean Radio as well at the time creating content for them I had stopped editing Kite Surf magazine so I was needing to produce content now yeah and, and basically you know every, there's a lot of people that do it uh, make a little brand for yourself really so that was a driving factor. And I probably would have done some more things like that. But then since the school, that's that's really taken over. And, you know, career comes first, basically. Yeah, I you guess need, you've you got to be ready to work otherwise. Yeah, yeah. otherwise it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really been an enjoyable thing. And so what I'll do now is I'll just go off on a surf trip in the winter, get some slamming waves, but I don't care if anyone takes a photo or not anymore. Yeah, and just enjoy yourself. Just enjoy myself, yeah. And not worry about having to go and surf the biggest wave that yeah, you can find. That's it. And certainly now, I mean, the way things are, and the, the you know, the, the big wave industry now or the big wave scene is just beyond, you know. It's a bit nuts what they're doing, bit, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So you kind of wonder where the limit to it is. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it's going to keep changing, isn't it? As these storms keep getting deeper. Yeah, that and more frequent. And more frequent, that that wave in Portugal is just going to get, keep yeah, getting bigger taller. And bigger and bigger. Big bloody wigwam, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a frightening prospect. And there's um, there's quite an interesting story about how you ended up with a surf school as well. That I remember you telling me that you were you were out on some surf trip somewhere and you just saw some guy post yeah. that he'd, he'd left. That's it. So I was actually, um, I was at the boot show. Ah, Das Boot. Das Boot, yeah, in Dusseldorf uh, with Ocean Radio. I was at the stand there and um, just was on Facebook because there's a lot of downtime at those shows. And I saw my friend, Ben Ridding, who had the school at the Headland Hotel. He's like, yep, so long, everybody. Thanks for all of that. I'm out of here now. I'm like, what? And Because I'd worked there for him. I'd been working with him in the summer because I wanted to get back into surf coaching. And we had loosely talked about well maybe there's a way to sort of come on board or you know do something together do something together yeah and i thought i can't believe he's, he's handing it handing the keys back and uh so i messaged him i said what's happening he goes you know i'm done with it i was like okay fine i think he, you know he, he really was done with it so i said are they are they looking for someone else then he's like i don't know he goes you should just approach them yourself and just do it that way and so i made up uh i had a surf sanctuary project was running at the time i had my logo and everything like that and then i made up a new one 
Um, in fact, Lloydy did it. Lloydy okay. did it for me. And he blended it in with the hotels one and we made it all look a bit different and less sort of edgy and, and made up some brochures. And, said, and I went down there and I said, I hear that the surf school's available. And they were like, no, it's not. I was like, okay, well, anyway, here's, here's a, a package I've put together. Will you please give this to the, the manager of the hotel? And they said, of course. And so they did. And then a week later, he phoned up and said, do you want to come in and have a chat? Wow. Um, I was like, okay, great. So I went and had a chat with Daryl. We got on really well. Um, he said, look, you know, we are looking for, for a surf school here. We're looking for the right sort of surf school. Um, he says, everybody in Yuki is putting a pitch. Um, but, you know, it is where it is. And then he called me up a couple of weeks later. And he's like, yeah, we're going to, we want you to come in. And that felt like winning the lottery. That's pretty yeah. amazing, right? It was, yeah, it's amazing. It's, the location is absolutely amazing, as you know. It's, just, it's, just, it's right there on the headland at Fistral Beach. With uh, some very well-to-do clients in the hotel. Great clients who want to surf. Who want to surf. They want to surf, and it's so convenient because they're in the hotel. They can just wander down in a dressing gown. We do the lesson. It's, no, you know, it's just all the difficulty of running those types of businesses is removed. Yeah. The facility is great. Keeps all the equipment in top condition. And I guess if you hadn't put that brochure together, I mean, that's quite a big thing to do. And you know, I saw that brochure. It was full-on glossy, yeah, like a proper brochure. Printed and nice... you did all that just off the, the chance that they yeah. might like it. That's it. It's a pretty bold move. Yeah, you've got to do it, though. When you, see, when you get a sniff and there's something you really want, you have to give it everything. And um, there's nothing to lose, really, apart from the time and the money it costs to make a brochure. Um, but it worked. I was so excited to, you know, to get a school there because I was getting right back into coaching and I realized that the clinics, as good as they are, they're hard, they're hard to do. You know, you, it's hard sort of looking ahead, planning it, trying to fill it, keep the people interested uh, and, and make it work as a business in this country. So you, need, you do need an instructional base where you can tick over and you can have um, just regular people turning up and having yeah. two hours and going away. So I was really excited to get that. But I also wanted to have a school and put my way of doing things on it really get our teeth into it that way put your um, stamp on it yeah so we shrunk all the le- all the lesson sizes down and um, we just cut out all the unnecessary chaff so like our lessons are two hours everyone else is two and a half but you get more time in the water with us because there's just less faffing around and yeah and the instructors seem to really like it they're a great bunch it works well for them because they they're not tired and the first year did you just do it yourself or did you have additional instructors helping it was out or me and curly tom okay curly tom yeah and we had a couple of others but he was the main one and uh he was awesome uh, he was so good at it, at teaching, that he would actually, and I've never had this before, he'd do a lesson on the beach and then people would wander up and come and find us and say, I've just seen your instructor doing a lesson. He's so good that we have to have surf lessons at this place. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was so, you know what he's like, he's so animated and jumping around. and He's got big hair. He's got big hair. The mum's probably quite fancied him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so these days, are you, you're full-time there, obviously, during yeah. the summer. And then in the winters, just a bit, bit more chilled out. Bit more chilled out. shut down. When, when do you close it? It keeps going. It keeps going. Yeah, we're teaching over Christmas. So, wow, really? Yeah, we'll teach over Christmas period. We'll get, we've got bookings for Christmas. Um, January, not much going on. Yeah. So it will sort of run along really till December. Like the yeah. season doesn't really end until then. January, we'll pretty much do nothing. February half term can be busy unless we're getting blasted by storms, which is quite possible. Yeah. So we just play it by year. Um but this year, if we're getting inquiries, or this February coming in, if we're getting inquiries, we'll probably do something with it because we've got the truck now. So we're a lot more mobile than we used to be. And so we you can go to different locations. Yeah, and Exactly. So we've avoided having a vehicle before because it was an expense that we didn't need. Yeah. Um, but now we can have one. 
So um, we'll probably do that. Or, you know, our SUP tours that we've started doing, we might be doing those. And then that's out of the way then. By the time April comes, you're in Easter. Yeah, and then that's yeah. full, full in, go all yeah. summer. The old, sort of way, the old days of, oh, there's three or four months where the phone doesn't ring or the emails don't come in. They've gone. Just it's, constant. Yeah, it's it's always there, which is good. I guess you kind of, you in the last five years, that's really when the, the staycations yeah. become so popular. It's great timing. So it's fantastic timing, isn't it? It is, yeah, it's fantastic timing. We've also got, you know, we, we use Seaskin's uh, products and they've got some, I mean, everyone makes warm boots and gloves, but we've got a load of really warm boots and gloves from them. It makes a big difference. Five mil wetsuits, decent hoods, all fur line stuff, the same as what your instructor's wearing. Yeah. So we can confidently say to someone, look, you know, the air is five degrees out there, the water's nine degrees, but you will not get cold. Yeah. So we can properly offer a surf lesson. It's not a chore. It's, it's really horrible taking someone surfing and they don't enjoy it. Yeah. And they're kind of still nice but they're freezing cold and they you know you, you can't it's not much fun no you, you don't want to do it you just literally do not want to take people in that situation but if you can confidently give them a good shot at it and keep them warm you, you're quite happy to try and push it still yeah winning half the battle yeah and then <clears throat> the sort of big bit of news that you've had this year i guess everything's been going really well with the school and mm. i saw you at new year's eve um in the outs and we were snowboarding and then all of a sudden heard about a mole <laughs> yeah which must have been pretty bad news and not of the fairy variety that digs holes in your garden no it was a naughty warty so what happened there well i had um, when did you notice it i think kate noticed it first kate noticed it and she said there's something on your back of your neck you need to get it checked out and this was around new year time just before we yeah. came out to see you guys and i said okay because you've got to get that checked it doesn't look right and i was, i thought well the worst it can be is like skin cancer which as far as i was aware wasn't dangerous yeah um so i was like okay i will and i didn't even know what skin cancer was i just thought it turned your skin scaly <laughs> I, I had no idea and that this is this sum total of what i knew about skin cancer was a friend of mine when we were nine years old at school i remember he goes my aunt's got skin cancer she's in australia i went oh no i said what happens he goes oh she just looks really scaly because <laughs> she's probably just been sunbathed so i thought that's what it did and that's right. right that was my knowledge of melanoma so it was pretty slim. It completely, completely misguided. Um, so I went to the doctor, a local GP. They missed. They said they didn't get it right. They misdiagnosed it, and they said, "Oh, it's probably just a scratch or a spot." And we were back and forth, back and forth. And I had to be quite insistent to say, "Look, I really want to get this biopsied." Yeah. And then finally went to get it biopsied. Had you started learning a little bit more about? No. Skin cancer then, and were you still just like, I just want to get biopsy, but yeah. I haven't really shown an interest in it. Yeah, yet. I wanted, I wanted, to, I just wanted to, you to take it out and tell me what it is, either way, and then I'll move on from there. So uh, went to this, finally got out of the doctor's surgery, and I uh, went to this awesome clinic in Truro, NHS clinic, but they're fantastic there. They took it out, they do a big incision. They said, look, eighty percent chance this is going to be fine, so don't worry about it. Um, they sent it away for biopsy and then like about three days later I got a letter oh, you need to go and see the specialist nurse so I said to Kate look I'm probably going to go and get the all clear um, I went to see the specialist nurse who turned out to be a Macmillan nurse okay. and I was in dermatology and uh, she said look it's come back it is melanoma malignant, malignant melanoma and I was like okay and then she started bringing all these leaflets out and then explaining to me what exactly malignant melanoma was and she said, yours is quite a deep one. It's 2.1, you know, that's sort of 2.1 mil thick. Um, that's just tipped you past uh, a satisfactory sort of safe zone, if you like. Not yeah. that there really is a safe zone once you've got one of those. Um, so you can have a, a, another operation 
which will remove a bigger area of skin around there to make sure no melanoma cells have escaped the original tumour. Because that's how melanoma likes to go. It works on this cellular level. It just They can burst around. They don't have to travel around in a big throbbing lump. Yeah. It can just send out its little cells. Little cells and yeah. there it goes and spreads. Yeah, exactly. A, a good um, analogy is, you know, a dandelion, once it's yeah. gone all fluffy, um, you try and grab a dandelion like that to get all the dandelion seeds, I guess they are. Yeah. Um, one will escape. Yeah. And it's very much like that when you surgically try and remove melanoma. Um, so she said, get that bigger excision done and then we can biopsy that skin, see if anything's happening there. And also there's another operation which is big in Australia. It won't improve your chances of survival, but it will tell us if the melanoma is spreading in other ways and that is to take out one of your lymph nodes. Okay. And so what we'll do is we'll put this radioactive dye in you and then put you into a gamma ray camera and we'll see which lymph node the dye has gone to first. And that will probably be the one that the melanoma has gone through first. Yeah, because that's where the cells are travelling to. That's exactly it. So she said, do you want that operation? I said, yes. She goes, okay, cool. And I was thinking, right, stage two melanoma. I can. And this is all still at your initial appointment with your first nurse. All this is being dropped on you. Yeah, dropped on me like that. So I was like, right, okay. Okay, I was like, that's not great, but it's not the end of the world. And I was looking at the survival stats. I was like, you know, that's... That's probably going to be all right. It's what were the stats? Eighty uh, percent survive. You'll eighty percent chance you'll be alive in five years' time. Okay, um, was and that like, was okay. stage two at that point. Yeah, for stage two. So I was like, okay, well, that's actually not. You know, that's not too bad. Pretty good odds. Pro- pro- probably, probably will be okay. But still, one in five. That's not very nice if you look at it that way around. But yeah. I wasn't devastated. Um, so went back, had this operation. And there again, oh, it's probably going to be fine. We're not expecting to find anything. Da, 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 da. Went back for the results for that one. They go, yeah, it was in one of your lymph nodes after all. And that was a bit of a sledgehammer blow, that one, because uh, that meant you're moving up a stage then to so you're stage, stage three. Stage three now, and it only goes up to stage four. Um, so you're almost at the top. Almost at the top, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it was on the march. It was on the move. Um and then that was that was like right okay this is uh, this is this is not good now. It's a bit more serious. Yeah, a bit more serious. So I don't really remember. I th- I probably blanked a lot of that out to be honest. Yeah, I just remember it felt a bit like being hunted by the Terminator. There's a scene in Terminator where <laughs> <laughs> Linda Hamilton and um, I can't remember the other guy. Anyway, he's uh, the. They're they're basically going to sleep. They've been on the run from the Terminator for most of the film, and there's this period where they just sort of go to sleep. And I remember watching that, thinking, "How can you go to sleep when the Terminator's chasing you? You know, what are you going to, what are your dreams going to be like? <laughs> you know." <laughs> and it's a bit like that when you've got like a heavy cancer. Where it's not it's not that heavy a diagnosis, but it certainly wasn't a good one. Um, yeah, you start to realise that it isn't just skin cancer. That the the cancer is growing into your body. Uh, it'll go to the lymph nodes and then it'll go to the liver, it'll go to the spine, it'll land on your brain and you're, you know, then you're, you're, you're really in a bit of trouble there. And it's a very, very unpleasant uh, process as they continue to do operations to try and keep you alive and oh, it's, it's pretty horrible. So, yeah, you just you just do not want, it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah, but you haven't got any choice. You've, you've got, got it. You've got no choice, no. So you've got no choice. And weirdly, you sort of think, oh, if that ever did happen to me, what would I think? You know, would I say, why me? You never, you don't say, why me? Your main concern straight away is for the people around you because you think, oh, I've got to tell them now and they're going to be so upset. And that is, and they said to me, the nurses said, look, that's what most 
cancer patients say they they're upset because they have to tell their loved ones. Yeah, and it's horrible, horrible news to give someone. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, big, it's really it's the big word that everyone dreads, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's bad enough hearing it yourself, but when you have to tell your mum and your missus and things like that, and they're really worried. So um, yeah, it all it, then it all went into a bit of a tailspin, and it all went a bit strange because I was then scheduled to have uh, what's called a neck dissection, which is where they take out all of the lymph nodes to do more staging and perhaps to catch any more that could be there and i started reading about that and I, was this when you started learning about cancer yes. and getting seriously into it because one of the things that i admire about you is you are a massive absorber of information and so when i was chatting to you about the time you started telling me about it, i thought ah, oh, dom's been doing some reading yeah i was doing a lot of reading i was doing a lot of reading and a lot of research and fortunately i just started studying at the open university so i was able to read a scientific document and i was able to discern what was a scientific document and what was just a website with someone saying take cannabis oil <laughs> <laughs> so you know there's ways of you know yeah. checking for you know, the authority of the document so that was good so i knew exactly what to start looking for so when people say oh don't google it that's nonsense google it because that's where everything is just be and then filter yeah and then filter and you'll find out what you need to know so i started learning a lot um reading these these clinical trial reports on various treatments so the gold standard treatment was this neck dissection absolutely horrible operation um leaves a massive scar leaves well, a massive it? scar you can get lymphedema in the neck um you can you know they can damage a nerve which will be a sh- your shoulder nerve so you won't be able to shrug they're like that's you know that's really a possibility you won't be able to shrug I'm like, well, and then of course you wouldn't be able to surf wouldn't be able to surf yeah wouldn't be able to surf um, just sort of skipping ahead a little bit, as it was, the operation I had to take out the uh, sentinel lymph node, that left me with demyelination in the nerve, in the axillary nerve, anyway, to the shoulder. So as it was, I couldn't shrug already. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they said, well, we didn't cut the nerve. We saw the nerve and we moved it because they said, your neck is quite a young neck because you haven't got any, much fat on it. Um, so it's very easy to see where everything was. So I was like, well, that's cool. I completely trust you because the surgeons were incredible. Um, they really, really were absolutely awesome. Um, so I thought, well, if it's that bad from just having one lymph node taken out, it's going to be a lot bad, and I probably won't be able to surf again. And that's really bad when you run a surf school. You need to, yeah. You need and to that's your passion, it. yeah. And it's my passion, and that's what I want to do. So I'm looking at this report, this big uh, German clinical trial of people who didn't have dissections and people who did, and there was no survival benefit to having the dissection, but you've had life-changing surgery. Okay, so it doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't really. do anything for you. So, um, I do Because you mentioned the other day that, is that they do that operation because they, they can't do chemo or radiotherapy yeah. for the condition that you had. Yeah. So is it the, the hospital's way of saying, oh, we're doing something, we'll do this? It's kind of, kind of <laughs> it, really. Um, I mean, surgery was the only, till very recently, was the only answer to melanoma. So once it then is inside you, very hard to surgically remove melanoma and of course you can't surgically remove cells you can't see them yeah uh, you can see them but you don't know which ones to take and yeah. there's, no, there's no scan which can pick them up so that was the gold standard treatment and it probably still is in most places around the world um but i knew that it didn't work uh so i thought well i'd rather just go watch and wait um where you have regular checkups and everything else all these scans every three months and if you do flip over into stage four which is obviously a disaster at least then you qualify for drugs yeah and these you're right that chemo doesn't work and radiotherapy doesn't doesn't do anything but the drugs they have now is called immunotherapy okay 
if you go to stage four, then you qualify for immunotherapy on the NHS. But that's kind of a crap way to get immunotherapy. Because you're then so badly yeah, down the road. You've, that you've basically got terminal. Your survival chances is... is oh, he's grim. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's grim. I mean, you, it's pretty well, much... Well, stage four is terminal, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's like you're, you're done. You're done now. Yeah, so start making plans. and So in Australia, they're doing adjuvant treatment. So this is where they give... Adjuvant means they're giving it to someone who's technically cured... But as we know, stage three, there's a 50% chance you're not cured. So what they're doing is saying, well, look, we've cut it out, but the way we know that melanoma behaves, it's probably still in your body. Yeah. So what we're going to do is give you the immunotherapy now, now and it's going to mop up any, any of the you know, remaining tumor cells that, that, have been, that have escaped. And immunotherapy is, according to this clinical trial, said that it works better when you hit melanoma hard and fast when the tumor burden isn't too big. So it's better to do it to get up, mop up microscopic cells rather than trying to wait until they've grown. Something, and... Yeah, something more serious and nasty. It's just it's just a better way of doing it. Hit it hard and fast and early. So I said to the the nurse, I said, "Listen, I want to uh, not have the neck dissection, please, which is coming up on Tuesday. I don't think <laughs> I've decided. Yeah. I fancy that." I said, "Can I have?" And this is like the Tuesday before, like a week before. I said, "I really would like to have some immunotherapy drugs." Um, is there a clinical trial? She said, "There is no clinical trial available." Um, She's awesome, the nurse, by the way, um, doing anything she can to help. So I say, can I have a meeting with the oncologist? I haven't seen him yet. And she said, yeah, I'll, I'll arrange that. And so she got me a meeting with the oncologist at really short notice. I went in to see him. I said, listen, this is where, you know, he knows about me. Um, I said, this is where I'm at. This is where I feel. And he said, I completely agree with you. I think if it was me, I would want, he didn't say I think, he said, I would want immunotherapy. If it was me, I would want to take that drug and hopefully mop it up. And then that could be you on your way, running your surf school to you. Yeah, heart's content. Until you've had enough. And uh, he said, trouble is, it's not available in the NHS um, for stage three patients. And I can't just write a prescription for 150 grand's worth of drugs because someone's going <laughs> to have a look. Good question. Yeah. He said, uh, there is sometimes a way we can get it. And uh, he said, I'm going to pursue those channels for you. But I'm also going to ask 10 of my colleagues around the country if they agree with you and me as well, you and I, in terms of not having the neck dissection and trying to go for immunotherapy. And he said, well, we're going to get 10 different answers because it's just up in the air at the moment. Yeah. So it's so, so new. Yeah. I mean, it's a real, I mean, it's only just finished clinical trials, right? It's not really, yeah. it's not massively available. It's not massively the world. available. That's it. Um, it's in fact, it's been knocked back by NICE. Um, so it's not even available uh, at the moment but it will probably come online for stage three patients next year so i'm the first person in the country to have it stage three um which is yeah trailblazing stuff st- st- stuff to be in so did the in. 10 surgeons that the guy contacted they came oh, yeah. back and they all agreed yeah they said yeah don't do the neck this guy's 40 years old he's a surfer and you know he's got an active job don't do the surgery you're guaranteed going to Ruin his it's sod's law. It's just going to happen. That it's going to be the one that you end up with the nerve yeah. damage. So, so don't do it. There is no curative benefit. So that was really good to hear that. Um, the surgeons were completely on board. They're like, "Yep, yeah, same same deal." They said it's, it would be sod's law that you will probably get an injured shoulder because of that, and that's going to be a bad thing. So that was the end of the surgery for me. Um, and then it was this big wait to see if we could get the immunotherapy. And how did that come about? Uh, so the oncologist. I had to message the drug company and say that, you know, how about a freebie? 
And they reply and say, no, we don't do those. You know, we don't do those. <laughs> um, because they can't really make it public knowledge because it'll just bury the share price. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's big, big, it's a big industry. Big money, industry. Big money yeah. He said, but they're going to do that and then they're going to phone me up and then we're going to have a private chat and I'm going to probably go and see them and I'm going to tell them about you and then maybe you're going to be like a little case study. Yeah. So I said, okay, all right. And uh, he said, you are a perfect candidate for it because you're young. Fit. Yeah, fit. It's, this, it's, it could work. So um, he says it sounds pretty positive. And how long did you have to wait to find out that Three news? months. Whoa, three months. Yeah. That's a long time. Hmm. To be sitting there going, well, I'm stage three, yeah, and I could be getting worse. Oh yeah, day. they found another one as well. Actually, I forgot they did find another tumor. No uh, way. Which had to have cut out, yeah, in another lymph node. Which wow. Wouldn't have, which wouldn't have come out on the uh, neck dissection anyway. So they would have missed that. They would have missed it. Um, so yeah, just had one out, and yeah, that just and by that point I was like, oh, so what? Another well, one. Another Don't one. It's just stage three B now. That's all that means. That must have been pretty tough. Those three months. Yeah, they were tough. Um, it was it was pretty tough. So I remember when the di- the big sort of stage three diagnosis came along. We we had a really busy week at the surf school. I finished off my first year of the degree at the Open University, but got a distinction, so I was very happy with that. I had sub magazine deadline. Um, you know about deadlines? Yeah, and we'd moved out for the week because we were renting this place out on Airbnb. So I just had a ton of stuff going on and. Um, but also, but actually, I, and I've forgotten all about this as well. I mean, that was tough, but I was really kind of incapacitated from the surgery. Um, so I couldn't sort of move properly. This arm didn't go very well. Um, couldn't look around. Couldn't go in the sea. That's for damn sure because of the open, you know, the open, open wounds. wounds such depth of the wounds. So I was really sort of feeling my sort of shoulders like this because obviously I was subconsciously trying to protect this Protecting side. It, yeah, so I was, it up a bit. Yeah, really feeling like not on top of the world physically. Um you know, and for a while I had the dressings on there and it looked sort of, you know, like what the hell's happened to you Yeah, type thing. And then word word got out. Um, well, I told everyone actually, I thought, because people had started asking and asking. I thought, I'll just put something out on one post on social media just to say just it. Just to say it. Everyone then knows. Uh, yeah. And then that just obviously sets off a massive chain reaction of messages and everything else, which wasn't really what, you know, I did it for. It was just to sort of, I thought some people wanted to know. It was easier that way. Um, I've actually since removed the post and stuff and I thought if I'm going to tell people I'll tell them in a different way i.e. like this yeah. or writing something to explain it a bit more rather than just a little social media yeah a little short yeah. stab at what's it what's up hun yeah so three months waiting and then how was it when you found out that you were going to get the drugs very good well it started to get more and more um, positive the wounds obviously healed I started spearfishing again um, that was great just getting out in the water I could run again because I couldn't run when the wounds were fresh. Um, couldn't really use the shoulder very well, but I could stand up paddle without too much pain. Okay. So it was getting, it was starting to get Getting impr- better. Yeah, starting to improve. And then the the messages I was getting from the team over in Trillis were getting, sounding more and more positive. Yeah, this has been happened. And then they finally eventually got the drug, then it just had to be signed off and a few more steps and bureaucracy and everything else. And then I went in to see the nurse again and she was explaining about the site. She goes, now I'm going to explain to you about the side effects of this drug. So it's a big, long thing about the side effects of the drug. I was like, okay. She goes, do you have any questions? I said, well, no. I just want to know if I'm going to get it or not. She's like, I completely understand um, where you're at with that. And then the next day she rang up. She goes, oh, hi, you've got the drug. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. 
Did that feel a little bit like when you got the surf school? <laughs> it kind of did. It, it, it did. It, it felt really, it felt really good. Yeah, so I, was, I thought, well, you know, I mean, it's not a cure. It, it can be a cure, but we don't know. I mean, we yeah, have, so, you, I mean, you're, the, you're sort of the only person outside of a clinical trial mm. to be on immunotherapy who's got stage three cancer in the UK at the moment. So you're a bit yeah. of a guinea pig. Yeah. What are the chances of it working? You know, what's the process with it and stuff like that? Um, without looking at the, 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 the graphs, I, I couldn't probably give you the figures. I think... It reduce so like there's a fifty percent chance of it coming back. A good way to look at it is it could knock it down to a fifteen percent chance of it coming back. Okay. Yeah, which is a which big, is a massive a chunk. Bloody good reduction. I mean, fifty that, fifty to fifth to fifteen. It's like 15, yeah, can kind yeah. of live back in stage two land, stage one land again. Um, so yeah, it it might do it. And there's also the theory that the adjuvant treatment, as in having it now, is a more is even better. It's than... potentially curative versus trying to fight it once it's really established in you. Um, so if it works, it'll be great. If it doesn't, then there is another level they can go to where they combo it up with another really brutal immunotherapy drug, uh, and that, that can sometimes have some pretty amazing results. I mean, there are people who are having, who've got bad tumours and the tumours have been reversed in an absolutely incredible way. Um, wow. And so yeah. how does immunotherapy work? I mean, a so, lot of people are familiar with chemotherapy and yeah. radiotherapy. What's, it's so new, you know, what's the deal with it? Well, it's, it's, it's so new, it's, um, it's completely genius. The people that have created it have just got Nobel Prizes. Uh, so it uses your body's own immune system to fight the cancer. So your white blood cells. Um, white blood cells will kill anything. Like, no problem. They'll eat your heart if they, <laughs> if you tell them to. Yeah, if you tell them to. You know, they 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 can kill cancer if they can recognise it. But melanoma is covered with a protein. Melanoma cells have a protein on their surface, which basically makes them look like friendly cells in the body. So your white blood cells go up to them and go, "Oh, that's cool. I'll leave you alone." Yeah. So when you take the the nivolumab immunotherapy I've got, what that does is that lifts the protein off of the melanoma. And then your white blood cells go, ah, got you. Yeah, and they, it's, uh, it's it, melanoma is what they call an immunogenic cancer. Like if the immune system can see it, it loves to kill it. It just munches it right up. So that's how the nivolumab works. That I've got. If you need to, they combo it up with one called ipilimumab, and that works by ramping up your immune system. Okay, so then boost yeah. all your white blood cells. Yeah, boost all your blood cells. You get all flu-like symptoms. You can get like arthritis-type feeling pains and colitis and all sorts of crazy stuff, but it's better than having cancer. So, you, yeah, it's, it works in a different way to chemo, which basically kills all the fastest-growing cells in the body and hopefully the cancer ones too. Yeah. Which is why your Feel. fingerprints go weird and your hair falls out and this type of stuff. So, yeah, it's a, it's a different thing. So it's kind of almost like a vaccine in a way, and they are using immunotherapies... There are there are they are doing trials as well or tests on animals, um, where they'll take some dead melanoma cells and they'll take the white blood cells and they'll introduce them to each other and they'll put them back in the subject and then that has like a vaccine effect against cancer. Okay. So they're probably going to have vaccines. So it's almost like teaching your white blood cells yeah. to recognise and attack a melanoma cell. Yeah. So then when you get a melanoma cell, your white blood cells already know what to do. They already know what to do. Sort it out. And there, um, there's also another branch of it called TIL, 
which is a tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, which again is when they do a similar thing, they take some of the tumor out, introduce it to the white blood cells, culture loads and loads and loads and loads of your white blood cells and then bang them in. So you've got this mega, white, mega high white blood cell count, which goes around munching cancer. So they're really, really different treatments. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's um, stunning. You mentioned that the side effects got read out to you. Mm. I mean, I've been here for a few days hanging out. You know, what, what side effects are you having? Do you seem like you? Yeah, none. Pretty I'm, healthy. I'm only, yeah, no side effects. Which is amazing because yeah, if you're on chemotherapy, you'd be like a ghoul sat yeah, there. Yeah, terrible, yeah. And yeah, feeling pretty pale. ill. Yeah, you might not really notice much difference. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't have any eyebrows. uh, um, Yeah, so I've I've had none. They said that you're probably going to get some tiredness, some fatigue. Um, You can get like upset tummy, bad bowels, which can be a sign of colitis, which is definitely something you don't want. Um, Headaches, nausea, all this type of stuff. But I've I've not had anything. They reckon that well, they have this scale called the performance grade, and it goes from naught to ten. Okay. And the lower down you are on the performance grade, the fitter you are, and I'm a naught. So, oh, perfect. Yeah, they said it, which is, you know, we'd all be noughts, basically. Any, yeah, anyone should fit and healthy. Yeah, that's it. They said that as the biggest prognostic you know, indicator for your, your success during treatment yeah. is how fit and strong you are. So because you're fit and strong, you're getting the right drugs, yeah. there's a good chance that you should make a good recovery. You should make a good recovery and also won't have the side effects. Yeah. Whereas if you're sort of bedridden or, diet, you know, not doing too Bit well... Ill. Yeah, more chance of side effects. Not looking after yourself. Yeah, they they say it, those people get they they pick up the side effects much more. It hits them much harder for some reason. And what's your post? Uh, you were telling me about your post um, post treatment regime. Oh, you, yeah, you go and surf. <laughs> I do. That's it. I go and surf um, after treatment. It's usually lunchtime on a on a Wednesday every two weeks. And I'll go out on whatever board I think is going to catch the most waves, and I just catch all the waves I can <laughs> <laughs> for about ninety minutes. And if you're out there that day, then you're, you're not getting any waves. No, no, I do say to people as well, I say, "Feel free to get on the same wave as me because I'm just going to get them all." <laughs> uh, then tomorrow I won't be. <laughs> it's just my one yeah, little release. So I'll either go on a foamy or you know a fourteen foot race board or something that's just going to catch a load of waves and and, and do that. And perfect. Yeah. And it feels good, you know, you're getting the blood pumping. I imagine it's really pushing it around. I mean, you're on a drip for 30 minutes, so it's gone all the way around quite comfortably a few times already. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the process of your treatment. You go into yeah. hospital, have a drip for 30 yeah. minutes. It's like sitting in an airport lounge, like on a big reclining chair. Yeah. Um, they put a saline drip in for a bit, and then they take that out, and then they put the, the volume ab comes out in a black bag because it's photosensitive. Um, can't see sunlight. Can't and see they, sunlight. Yeah, they mix it up like that day. Um, and it has a. It lasts for like twelve hours. It's got to be in you, right? You know? So they phone up the day before. You're definitely coming in tomorrow. Yeah, I'm definitely coming in. It's all very structured. Yeah, it's all ready to go. Yeah. Do you um end up like? Does it mean that you can't travel and stuff like that? Because obviously you're in your downtime at the moment with the school. You'd normally be heading off somewhere like yeah. Indonesia or something to surf. So has it impacted you in that way? So uh, the treatment will last for a year. It goes on for a year. After that year, then I won't be getting it. So that's fine i can go away whenever i want i just have to be back for my scans yeah. every three months um, at the moment the treatment's every two weeks but if i want to go away for a month i could shift one of the treatments back two weeks and have double the dose okay and then resume back on two weeks again so, so you could get like yeah. a month away if you yeah, wanted could to go away for a month no problem that's good yeah and the other thing i did wonder about was travel insurance um but i spoke to the bank and they said oh, we don't really care Oh, really? Yeah. So as long as, you know, you, we're not going to cover you for melanoma-specific conditions. And I said, well, I don't want 
travel insurance for that because I can't really imagine that it's going to stop, stop you from having your holiday. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So we'll go away somewhere. We don't know where yet, but... Get a little break somewhere. Yeah. In the sunshine. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, do, yeah, do we... you think you're... Because you're, you're fair-haired mm. and, you know, I've been on some trips with you and you get pretty sunburned. Do you think that's why you're a higher risk... Yeah. For it, so you now thinking, okay, I don't need to be going to these super hot, sunny places and getting burnt, or has it changed your attitude to the sunshine? I guess it has a bit. Yeah, a little while ago, actually, I stopped wanting to be outside in the sun. And the last few trips I've been on, I've just made a point of business before all of this happened. The last probably three three trips I'd say I've been on easily, I just would go to sleep in the middle of the day, get up early, surf, come and go to sleep, and just avoid the sun. I got really good but skincare and never burnt at the school, always using cream, always wearing a hat. Um, they said it's pure sun damage, my one, um, but it would have probably been from childhood burnings. Yeah. Yeah. Back before sun cream. Yeah. Really they reckon thing. like you get burnt three times, you can get melanoma. Wow. Well, six sessions on a sunbed will do it. Um, but if, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, and it, it, the, obviously if you're more likely to produce moles, then you're more likely to get melanoma, but you can get people of all shades of, the you know the skin Spectrum can yeah. get it. Bob Bob Marley died from melanoma. Really? Yeah, that was the cancer that killed him. Um, there's people in, the, in our patient group on Facebook with you know Turkish origins and roots, and there's people in I mean in El Salvador, uh, sorry Venezuela, where Pepe, one of the guys who used to work for us, he's from. He said look, a lot of people in Venezuela are getting melanoma. Of course, they're Spanish. So yeah, it will be the sun that does it. And for anyone like listening into this, you know, what advice have you got to them if they've got a mole that they think, oh, get it checked, get it checked. It's very easy to see online. There's a very simple, they call it the ABCDE thing. I can never remember what they stand for, but a, a mole that sort of stands up that wasn't there before, uh, just get it checked. Go to your GP and don't take no for an answer. Don't let them tell you it's a spot and send you away. Just say, no, I, I need this to get biopsy because it looks like this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree with me? And just be insistent and get it done. Um, melanoma is like the fastest, I think, growing cancer around at the moment. But it's the it's preventable. Yeah. You know, with the right education and the right protections. It's prote- prote- so that was my next question was going to be, you know, how do you avoid getting avoid it? it? I mean, is it sun cream, slip, slap, slot, like yeah, the that's Australians it. say? That's it. That's pretty much it. Um, a really simple thing you can do is if you're standing outside and your shadow is shorter than you are tall, then you're at risk. So okay. if the shadow is longer than you are tall, then good. There's, the sun's lower in the atmosphere, less energy. so yeah, less yeah. energy from it. That's right. Um, yeah, I always just always wear a hat now. Always, always. Um, always put sun cream on, on the neck. You know, factor 30. Uh, really good stuff, and that's it. And just don't, don't lie around in the sun. <laughs> yeah, just don't. And other than that, I just carry on completely as normal. Yeah, and of course, I won't have to worry about it now for the next four months because we yep. aven't going to have any sunshine. No, yeah. not going to be any sunshine <laughs> yeah. in the UK for a while. So yeah, I carried on like working at the school. What I did was um, just stop doing lessons at twelve o'clock. I'd do lessons at nine till eleven, and I'd do lessons again at three o'clock onwards. It's but you fine. wouldn't do the midday ones, no. And what's the what's the prognosis moving forwards? You're on this treatment. Mm. How long, you know, are you going to be on the treatment? How often do you have to go to hospital? What's the deal with that? So uh, the treatments. Lasting for a year, and I think we're about two months through it right now. So it'll finish September next year. Okay. Um, at the moment, I go for a CT scan every three months, which is a, a 
frequent as you want. It's as frequent as you can, you can get. You can do it. Yeah, that's no full body scan, isn't it? Full body scan. Um, there's no point doing it any more than that because you won't notice any changes anyway. And also, it's, I don't think I don't know if you want to really have too many CT scans. It's, yeah. Um, so I've got to go for those every three months for the next two years, and then that's going to get dropped down to about every four months for the next three years, and then I'll probably be having them every six months, I think, probably for life. Um, wow. Yeah. So your innards will be the, one of the most photographed innards. I'll be the most photographed man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, they keep a really good eye on you, which is fantastic and you're quite happy with. But it's so easy going in there to the hospital. It's, you're never really waiting. It's always pretty quiet. It's good. And you were telling me that the, the NHS have just been fantastic. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean, the this flexibility of them, you know, you imagine, I thought it was going to be like dealing with some intransigent, you know, this is the path it's going. Oh, you can't speak to that person. No, that's not. But they're so patient first. You know, are the patient wants this, don't do it without asking the patient. They're, they're brilliant. Yeah, they've, they've responded so fast. I mean, I'll give you a very quick example. Um, the last CT scan I had, it just so happened that I had a meeting with the oncologist the next day. It normally take two or three weeks for a CT scan result. And the radiologist said, oh, when are you next in clinic? I said, tomorrow. She said, I'll get this done and it'll be with your oncologist tomorrow. So they turned a CT scan around within 24 hours. Wow. So, yeah. So they've done that. It's a hell of a you know, thing you've got to process. Um, someone has to look at that. A doctor has to look at that. He has to write up a report and then they have to present it to the oncologist the next day. And they did it. Um, you just cannot physically get it done any better than that. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're good. When, they, when I have an appointment or I have to see them in clinic, they just send me a text now. It's all quite sort of easy. friendly and easy, yeah. And there's you know, talk on a wider scale nationwide about the sort of postcode lottery with cancer yeah. treatment and stuff like that. Have you, you know, Are you in a good place to be getting treated does that exist is it true or what's your it is true yeah it is true there are some centers i mean ultimately you're dealing with humans doctors are humans so surgeons and oncologists and if they don't know something then they're going to tell you the way that they've always done it and there are obviously people around um still having the old types of treatment which would be the neck dissection yeah the dissections and things um in some cases that's you've got to have that done so, say for example, a scan shows up, there are a bunch of nodes there. Yeah, you'd be stupid to leave them in. You want to take them all out. Um, so, there are, for example, I mean, on a bigger scale in Italy, um, I know there's a surgeon out there who's they're absolutely convinced that the dissections are still the way to go. And that, what are you on about? Nothing else exists. You know, the, the, it hasn't filtered down yet. You know, the surgeons have to go to these symposiums and these. And learn. Uh, learn, yeah. Um, but it, it, back in the UK, Cornwall is a good place to have cancer if you're going to have it because the, the setup there is really good. Toby Talbot, the oncologist, who I see, he got a load of fundraise, you know, raised a load of funds for the centre there, and the centre is absolutely spot on. Um, there's just there's so many resources there, and and he's really passionate. <laughs> he's really passionate about melanoma because they're making successes now. They're making gains, uh, which makes a big difference. You know, there's a good chance that you're going to make a full recovery from this then. Yeah, it's looking good. Looking pretty positive. I mean, everything is, all, all indicators would say that. The, the way the treatment's been administered, the performance grade, um, me not having a bad response to the treatment so far. The surgeons look like they've done a fantastic job and got everything as far as the scans can tell. Yeah. So the last scan was clear. That's good news. Yeah, it was absolutely superb. Um so you've just got to keep those scans clear. Keep those scans clear. Next one's two days after Christmas. 
Oh, happy days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a monstrous hangover for that one. Uh, yeah. So it would be a case of just having the scans. I think once you get past two years, you, you're, you're not out of the woods, but you're out of the red zone. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Make it past two years. NED, they call it. No evidence of disease. And then just... For two years. Yeah. And then keep that up. Keep that up. Yeah. And hope that the immunotherapy's whipped over. I mean, it could be, you know, the oncologist did say to me, we'll never, if you are cured, you know, and you go and live a really long life, when we'll never know who cured you, whether it was the immunotherapy or the two excellent surgeons I had. That took the yeah. initial yeah, cells who, out. Who I can't say enough about. They're absolutely perfect. So there was, it was uh, Polly King... And Zarina Sheikh, um, Sheikh, interesting name for a surgeon. <laughs> but <laughs> they were experts. Um, so Polly King dealt with the first load of it all. And she said, I'm not confident about going up in the neck. So we're going to get Zarina Sheikh in, who is the best like, head and neck surgeon in the, in the Southwest. Um, she's based over at Trillis. But I'm going to ask her to come over to Hale Hospital at the same time, out of her schedule, and do that operation with you while I'm doing the other bit. And they did that, which was absolutely, you know, above and beyond to have two surgeons right there, you know, both specialists in their field, doing a fantastic job. And I'm completely healed from that surgery. Incredible, really. Yeah, really good. And they were saying that we want you to get back out there surfing because Polly King surfs a bit. She's like, you know, she used to come in, where's my surfer? Where is yeah. <laughs> Right, we're going to get you. You're never going to see us again. We're yeah. going to get you out and out of here. So positive, so sort of confident and so good at it and such a wonderful bedside manner it made the whole process a lot better yeah um so they were fantastic now i'm done with the surgery i'm in the hands of toby talbot the oncologist he's just an amazing guy of course he's done all that for me by getting the drug yeah um then i have my nurse sarah and lisa um they're just fantastic so it's that they have really made a huge difference difference. to the psychological impact of it yeah i was gonna say it's probably my last question is like psychologically Mm how have you managed to deal with it? You know, it must have been quite a blow and there's got to be ups and downs and good moments and bad moments, you know, has it yeah. changed your outlook on life? Has a bit. It changed my outlook a bit. I mean, usually I feel quite good, like really happy about things and positive and, well, you know, like anything, a disaster happens and you start to put pieces back together and that alone feels as good as winning when life's going normal anyway. Yeah. The fact that things are trending in the right direction doesn't matter how far down the pit you are, as long as you're climbing up, it's all right. Yeah, you, feel you the can same. see you're going in the right direction. Yeah. Um, so I did really busy, we were really busy at the school in the summer, that helped a lot, being busy, being active. Not being able to think about it, not just being going, a, well, I've got to get Yeah, or, or thinking done. about it, but not, fe- not, be- not feeling like a vulnerable thing because I had people dependent on me, you know, I was responsible for all sorts of things. So that, that was good. The studying was really good. That helps keep the mind off it. Um, you have to go down the pub sometimes. <laughs> you just do, like whatever. You, know. uh, you just got to do that. I just kept up with all my hobbies, all my sports. Um, that felt really good. Kate's been awesome. You know, all the people around you are awesome. Um, they're just, you know, people being around you, being sensitive to it is, is is good. And you know, gradually, if there's no more bad news, you start to start to feel quite happy. Yeah. And feel like it's yeah, going to be all feel, right. Yeah, I really do feel happy on a day-to-day basis. Um, every now and again, you get a sort of glimpse or not reality check, but you'll see something or be reminded of something or something will happen to someone else. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it is real. It's serious. It's still still there. But, um, yeah, right now I'm sort of still thinking like normal, like planning ahead. Yeah. Oh, what's going to, you know, I better, better get, you know, 
deposit saved up for X, Y, Z because in 20 years time I'm going to need it and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, you, you, I think positivity is the way to go. Just keep moving forward. Yeah. Looking ahead. Yeah. Do what you can, what you can. Try not to let it affect you mm. as much as possible, I guess. Yeah. Keep life as normal as well, well, you're normal, it was yeah. before. That's it. My little thing I say to myself is in this second right now, am I okay? Yes, I am. Then that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Just really for that, um, live, you know, that live for the moment type thing, but yeah. not in a way that you just spend all your money because you don't, you don't think it's going to be there tomorrow <laughs> by a massive TV. <laughs> um, yeah. It just makes you, I think I suppose what it, what it definitely does is it makes you realize that some things really just are not important. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not worth bothering about. That's what you do. You learn to let go of a lot of nonsense. Yeah. And don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Just don't worry about it. Just keep good things around you and that's enough. And that's it. But I was, I mean, I know we're going to wrap up now and have some dinner, but one moment for me was last weekend when we had this pumping swell came in and uh, paddled out North Fistral and my shoulder had been feeling better and better. And I would not have paddled out there two months ago because my shoulder would have been bad. Um, paddled out there was Ollie Adams, Alan Stokes, Mark Harris, Josh Hughes, uh, and me. And, uh, you know, they guys, they're all pro surfers. Pro surfers, you know, uh, or have been. And Josh Hughes is now a medic in the Army. He's an incredibly fit guy. Um, Ollie Adams, obviously, is still at the top of his game. Stokes, he is who he is. And Eagles, hell of a surfer. And uh, I was the fifth guy which I was ever so pleased about. I made it off the beach, got out there and uh, got one wave, but it was a belter. And uh, Jeff Tyman was great and he got a photo of it. And I saw it, I thought that, that is a great starting point for, for moving onwards. I'm clearly physically better now. I'm back surfing. It's the best wave I've had in, a, in donkey's years. It's the best wave I've ever had at Fistral, in fact. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I thought at one point I'd probably have my best wave. But it's always still out there. Yeah. They're always going to keep rolling yeah, in. The, yeah, it's that little thing we write on the chalkboard every day at the school because we can't really think of any wisdoms. We have a, we have all the weather reports and stuff, and we have this bit that says wisdoms, and I wish we never put it there because we've never got any wisdom. So we just put, <laughs> oh, the best way of your life is still out there. Yeah. and But it is. But it is. And unless yeah. you're there for those opportunities, then you won't get it. No, you, you won't. to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and doing all the sports and stuff I'd done through the summer and sort of keeping moving and keeping mobile, it meant that when it did come, I was at least physically ready for it. Yeah. Yeah, I got absolute pasting (laughs) from it. (laughs) Proper one, because Stokesy was, uh, you know, sort of somewhere where I would like to have been, paddling back out, so I had to dodge him, and then got the lip on the head and everything else, but it was all right. That was good. (laughs) Well, Dom, I think we've chatted for ages there. We have. And uh, we literally only covered two of the topics that I Mm. want to chat to you about. So we're going to have to revisit um, and come and chat to you about some of your other funny tales. Sounds good. Hunting and shooting and all the other bits that you get up to. There's a lot. But yeah, thanks very much for that, Dom. That was awesome. Thank you, Rue. Appreciate it. I really enjoyed listening back to that one and doing the edit on it. Um, I actually thought when Dom and I sat down there'd be lots of laughter and uh, hilarity because that's normally what happens when we get together but it was quite a somber chat and quite a serious chat but there's lots of good stuff in there and I hope you enjoyed the tales of Hawaii and big wave training and also you know Dom's story and his battle with cancer which I think is quite incredible and his attitude to it is um, most impressive he's just taking it head on and not letting it phase him too much As ever, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a thumbs up, give us a like and a share on Facebook or social media, tell your friends about it down the pub and let everybody know about the Intriguing Beings podcast.
Until next week, you've been listening to me, Rue Chater, and the Intriguing Beings podcast. <laughs>